Here's Chavinko. Lovely ball through towards Altidore. Altidore! Toronto FC's big acquisitions combine to tie the game. Josie Altidore. The Two Solid Dude Soccer Podcast with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramie. The award-winning soccer podcast that covers every single aspect of Canadian soccer. And now, without further ado, here's Dwayne Rollins. And welcome to the Two Salties Podcast. I am Dwayne Rollins here in traffic, bogged up, complaining about the world, Toronto home of the 2015 Pan Am Games, of course, uh, the POV lanes open today here in the big city of Toronto, Kevin, and you'd think that it was a nuclear war. Everyone is moaning and complaining, and I uh, my commute was was harsh today. The cat got in my way for a half second. Uh, it was it was really really difficult to get here to the den, but uh, I made it, and I'm here to host the show along with you, Kevin. How are you? Well, I'm here in Montreal, where the biggest women's World Cup game of its history will be played tomorrow. Semi-final between. The United States of America and Germany, so that's going to be interesting tomorrow night. And tonight, I uh, will be a part of uh, Back Heels Women's World Cup Companion Show with Jonathan Tannewald. So we'll be doing this tonight. So a very busy few days in the world of women's soccer, especially, but in the world of soccer as well. Yes. Uh, what's who's not busy right now? Are the Canadian women's national team? <laughs> yeah, they're not busy anymore. They, uh, they, of course bowed out to England 2-1 on the weekend. We'll talk that and break that down pretty strongly in the middle half, maybe give a little bit of thoughts on our semifinals, but uh, mostly focus here on Canada. Uh, but we have a good guest first. Uh, Jeff Paulus is the Academy Director at FC Edmonton. We had a nice conversation about Canadian development issues, about the work they're doing in northern Alberta to try and create the next generation of Canadian players, and about some of the politics that goes into the whole Canadian development system. So uh, it's a really enlightening conversation, I think, that we had. And uh, I, we do thank Jeff for that. And I think before we, we talk anymore, let's just uh, bring him on, have that, uh, have that conversation. And then we'll come back and we'll talk some Women's World Cup. And when we talk about Edmonton, you know I have to put this song. And welcome back to the Two Saltoots Podcast. Dwayne Nolan's here with Kevin Laramay and Jeff Hollis, the uh, Academy Director for FC Edmonton. We thought we'd have Jeff on to have a little bit of a development conversation, have a little bit of a conversation about what FC Edmonton's doing up there in, in northern Alberta to try and uh, create the next generation of Canadian players. So uh, we thank Jeff for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate it. No. First off, let's just talk about what your structure is. What what are you doing up there? If you could, you know, succinctly describe what uh, FC Edmonton's academy is right now. Yeah, so of course we started this academy in January 2012. Um, that was um, when we had uh, Harry uh, Sinkerevin was the head was the head coach here and uh, Hans Schreiber. So they thought it was really important to develop local players. Uh, of course, that also helps the bottom line of the team. For every player you develop into your first team, uh, you know, of course, not that we pay transfer fees in the NASL, but um, but certainly it, you know, you can bring players that are 18, 19 years old into your own program, so that cuts back on the players you have to go find elsewhere, whether it's the States or throughout Canada or overseas. So so there's a big help there to do that. 
Um, when the program first started, it was actually Tom and Dave Fath, our owners, that really wanted to contribute to the city of Edmonton. So part of this project for them, with, even with the first team, is about giving back to this city. And uh, certainly they, want, uh, they wanted the venue for young players to kind of be able to try to achieve their dreams, um, some, some mechanism to push players to succeed, not just on the training pitch, but in life. And um, so that's really where, where the academy started from. Of course, it's fully funded by Tom and Dave Fath. Uh, and again, that just goes with them trying to give back. So, so that's that's how it's going to start. Um, where we're at right now, we started with the U18 group. Um, just uh, this past year, we started with the U16 group as well. Uh, we're starting to go a bit younger. We're, we're trying to get a bit younger to to affect them earlier. Um, so I guess I guess that's why the academy came about. Uh, Jeff, could you uh, just character? Oh, sorry, could you characterize yeah, sort of what your um, you know, some of your strengths? What are your uh, your Good, good feelings. Just tell me about some of the players that you have coming through right now, and some of the the work you've done already. What's the t- talent level like up there in, in Alberta? Yeah, you know what, the talent level is actually extremely high, and you know you would actually notice this certainly with because a lot of the a lot of the Whitecaps, some of their top players over the last four or five years have actually uh, Albertans, and uh, certainly a few out of Edmonton. So, um, so there is there is players being produced here. It starts off at the club level. Uh, there's some good. There's a few clubs doing some great work in Edmonton. Uh, of course, we get them at about 14 years old. Um, we've already graduated 10 players out of our academy into the first team that have earned a contract. And of, of that 10 that's graduated, six are still with us right now on the first team. You know, uh, Hanson Balkai is probably the, the most famous one, but certainly Sadi Javali is is really coming into his own as a young footballer at the moment. Uh, Milan Roberts is. You know, of course, his first call-up. So we've had some really big success stories. I think the NSL offers that for young Canadians. So I think we're, you know, we're in a good position to be able to develop young players and actually give them a chance at being pro. And then hopefully from the NSL, we can move them forward to a higher level, uh, which is definitely a goal of ours. Uh, coming through the system, we've got, um, you know, in my opinion, I think we've got actually one of the strongest 2,000 groups in the country that are in our academy. Is, uh, you know, I know that the CSA has just started this U15 project where they brought in the three pro academies and had a Canada team. Uh, put together um, with those non-MLS academy uh, players. and I, I feel pretty strongly that our 2000 group would have went there and actually competed quite strongly and would have surprised quite a few people. Um, you know, with the U18 group, there's uh, Shamit Shom and uh, Thomas Shores that have, have come through, and uh, they've both now gone away with Rob Gale and the U18 national team. Uh, Shamit Shom is, you know, was arguably one of Rob Gale's best players over the last couple of tournaments, and he was a relative, a relative unknown player uh, up until this past year. So, so we've got a few, and, and Shamit Shom will be a player that will have a definite, uh, have a great opportunity to earn a first-team contract as he goes forward. So that's the level that Shamit is now at. Um, certainly Thomas Shores, like I mentioned, we've got two other boys at centre-backs. That one's going down to the States on a scholarship. Uh, the, other, the other one will be returning to us next year as a grade 12 student. I've got high hopes for both of these young players. And um, at the youngest groups, you know, there's probably, I would say there's about six players in our U16 group right now that, you know, if they keep progressing, uh, I think can do very well. And certainly we can get them into national team camps and then how they go from there is, is up to them, I guess. Um, maybe one other player I should mention is that we've got a, a 1999 born striker. He's about six foot four already and 205 pounds. And um, this kid is really becoming a beast. So so he's one that, you know, I think I think that Canada soccer, hopefully in the next couple of years, will hear a lot about. If we're talking about the, the challenges of an academy in northern Alberta, in a, the black hole of Canadian soccer, in a way where far from everything, can you uh, explain to us the different challenges that your academy faces compared to maybe academies that are situated in a more densely populated area? 
Yeah, I think one of our biggest challenges right off the bat is, is like you said, we're in Edmonton, so we're on a bit of an island, and that includes we're our first team, of which is on a bit of an island in the NESL uh, with our travel schedule. So uh, we also, we're a program that we, we typically just take local players. We don't have a full residency. We don't, you know, we, we don't have that type of a budget where we can bring players in from all over. Uh, I would like to do that, you know, certainly because people have no problem coming in Edmonton and, and grabbing Edmonton kids, so I would like to return the favor. But... Um, uh, we just don't have that type of budget at the moment. So, so some some of the challenges for us is is definitely because we're a smaller market up here. Uh, it's getting clubs to buy in. It's getting clubs to support the program that we're trying to do. And of course, you still have that whole uh, club ver- youth club versus professional academy uh, issue, where where some clubs just don't believe in what you're doing. They, you know, winning U16 nationals, club nationals is more important than a player getting into a pro environment uh, for some coaches. So, those are definitely some of the struggles that that we still face. Um, I think. You know, because we don't have the MLS tag with us, there's also that issue that we face, and that might even, you know, permeate down to the local clubs where maybe they don't see us as that as that big step, and they're reluctant to to encourage kids to uh, come into our program. That's changing, of course. I mean, we're we're now, whenever over the last year or two years, whenever we've offered a player a position in our academy, we've we've never had an issue in, in having to convince them to come in anymore. So, that's a start, but. As you mentioned, though, you know certainly that uh, certainly our region and um, and being so close to the Whitecaps is is one of our biggest issues. You spoke about how people are not shy to come to Edmonton to take players from <laughs> for other academies. Can, can you explain mm-hmm. to us? Is there a rivalries between academies? Is there a a, a almost a uh, a war of arms to get the the best player possible for an academy? Is there something going on behind the scenes, uh, even at a young level, for the players? You know, I think it's um, I think it's certainly an issue of we're a Division Two club. Um, you know, and I'll use the Whitecaps because they're closest to us. Uh, you know, they're the Division One. Um, the Whitecaps sink millions of dollars into their academy. You know, so so there's there's that um, I guess the perception that what happens there is better than what happens here. You know, I, I would put what happens on our training pitch uh, and the development of our players up against any academy in Canada. And uh, you know, I say that as humbly as I can, but it's just how I feel uh, how I feel about what we do with these players. And, and I think we're producing players. We've also put 14 young kids since 2012 into the youth, into the youth uh, national team uh, programs. So I think the rivalry there comes from, we're a different model than MLS. You know, once a player comes to our academy, if a player at grade 12 wants to go to Europe, we'll, we'll actually try to promote that for that player. And, um, and that, that, even if that means bypassing FC Edmonton, if we can get a player to a higher level, which of course makes them then a stronger player in the long run for the CSA and our national teams, and we're going to do that. And so I think that's where our model is a bit different. Um, we also sign players out of our academy right to our first team. And, you know, Hanson Bulk, I signed at 16 years old and played at 16 years old in the NASL. We've had a couple other players play at 17. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, we've signed those six current players. There's six current academy players still on the first team now. And um, most of these players are, you know, not even 22 years old yet or 21 years old. And they're getting minutes. You know, Alan Zeebe's another great example. So, so I think our model's different. Um, so when there is, uh, whenever there is a bit of a conflict with individual players, you know, I think it stems from what does that player want to do with their career? Um, do they want to just play in the MLS? And if they do, that's fine. I mean, I'm not knocking the MLS at all. You know, certainly it's a fantastic level and it's a division higher than ours. But, but some players have aspirations of going to Europe and some players have aspirations of maybe being a bit more free in their choices. Um, we also heavily weigh uh, academics in our academy. And um Part of the program here for our players is my assistant coach, actually, with our U18 team. Uh, he's been with me from day one, uh, you know, since we started this academy together. And he's been my academic advisor, and he's a, he's a school teacher. He's in the high schools. A uh, majority of our players attend the school that he teaches at. And uh, he's able to ensure these kids are going to school, 
are behaving properly or getting their grades. I'm, I'm not talking about being honor students either. I'm just talking about achieving what they can achieve. And um, we work really hard at getting these players scholarships, the ones that we don't sign with the first team. So, so I, I don't think it's a real, you know, it's not a definitely not a full blown a full blown conflict. Um, I just think that maybe some players, based on their aspirations, are better suited to stay in our program as opposed uh, to leave. Jeff, the, the Whitecaps right now have exclusive rights to all of the prairies, uh, you know, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, mm-hmm. and British Columbia, of course, uh, within an MLS context. Um, but I do believe they also hold rights over anyone you develop out there just because of, of the mm-hmm. location. Do you, do you think that that's in the best interest of development? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't, actually. You know, certainly our owner is, uh, and, um, and Bob, have, uh, Bob Landuzzi have talked about how the academies can, can coexist and work together um, and whatnot. But, but I think that um, throughout this country, I think if our game is going to grow, I think we need to rely on more than just three professional MLS academies. And um, players get missed. Uh, players don't don't do well away from home. There's so many different reasons, but also then we're just relying on what's being taught at one program. And um, there's different there's different ways to. I think there's different views on the game. I think different um, coaches have different styles and different ways of reaching players. And um, so the more people involved in our country, more people in our country involved in, in doing that and teaching against players, I think the better off our, our national programs are going to be. So that I mean that territorial rights. I mean that, again, that's an MLS. That's an MLS granted uh, territory, you know, region, and it's, um, you know, for me personally, and I won't speak for FC Edmonton here, but for me personally, I've always had an issue with that. I think that um, that every professional club uh, within within Canada should be protected, at least within their own city. Um, that's just my viewpoint. Uh, Jeff, let's move more local. You you did touch upon an issue that's not just up up your way; it's it's across the country. This resistance towards, I guess, the traditional youth clubs towards the uh, the academies mm-hmm. that are more based on you know pro models, development models, or, or what have you. How do we fight and win that battle so that the the, the two programs can coexist in, in an environment where they're mutually competing and, and trying to develop players in the in the proper way? Yeah, it's it's always going to be an interesting question. I think it's um, I think for the most part the pro academies are still new, relatively new when you compare our soccer nation to anywhere else in the world. Um, I, I guess I include the states in that as far as being relatively new. So so I think when the uh, pro academies come in, there was reluctance and maybe things weren't handled the best of ways initially, where it's where the pro academy were taking these players and were better than you. And I think so maybe that could have caused an initial problem, and that was certainly an issue when this program first started. Um, for some people involved, so you know we work hard to, to fix that. But I, I think in, in most soccer nations worldwide, you know the, uh, the the head association controls player development in that country, and, and it goes to the professional clubs. And um, so the idea, you know, so the, the issue with districts and youth clubs doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, where there's so much power and influence in those in those associations and bodies. So. Um, so that's the difference that we have, of course, is so the provincial associations and then the districts within those associations, they have so much power and voting power, and they can really control uh, the CSA. So I think, until, um, I think until a large portion of the CSA budget comes from outside sources besides the districts um, and, and the provincial bodies, then I think you know, we're going to be in this situation for, for a bit longer. Um, but it, it would be nice, though, you know, to have a few more professional teams throughout the country. And I know there's certainly been talk of some other ones joining the NASL or, or maybe USL Pro. But um, the more of these that we have, I think that issue will be alleviated. And I'm not having to dig at the clubs either because certainly there's some, there's some clubs ca- countrywide that are doing fantastic work. And we benefit, we benefit from some of those clubs that, that put real development into players. 
Uh, and there's even some, you know, paid academies that do fantastic work. And the one that always comes to mind for me is Sigma. And I don't know the people at Sigma personally, so when I say that, I'm not, I'm not promoting them right now. Um, but, you know, certainly they're putting players in the national teams, and that's what really any of these academies should be about, in my opinion. Again, you know, it's, uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it at that for the moment, but... I guess I'll wrap with this question. Just, uh, you know, do you see hope? How much hope do you have for the future of the game right now in, in the country, on the men's side, anyway? How much um, hope? Sorry, say it one more time. How much hope do you have for the future hope. that we're going to that we're going to fix this um, stuff? You know what? I've got a lot of hope. I got to say, I'm definitely I'm, I'm definitely an optimist. When I when I when I think of the young players now being created, uh, being developed in our country, I look at this uh, the U20 team certainly at the last, uh, qualifiers and. You know, we all wanted that U20 team to do better. Um, I think there's a lot of circumstances outside outside of the conditions of the game that, that had an impact as well. You know, um, I know I've, there's certainly a lot of stuff has been said on Twitter, and, and I know uh, I know Rob Gale personally, and he's a personal friend of mine, and I know the work that he put into that group of players, and I know the talent level of that group of players. So I think when you see when you see um, the, the the technical development that's happened in those young kids, I've got high hopes um, going forward. You know, I think some of the work being done, whether it's uh, our own academy, you know, I can say the Whitecaps Academy, TFC, now with Stuart Neely there. I, so I think I, I think the real work is being done at the young ages. Um, I think it's getting better. I just think that there's there's going to be a time frame here uh, until that, that mix becomes our mid-20s, you know, mid to late 20s. That's when I think we're going to start to see uh, the benefits of what's happening now, hopefully. You know, I think yep. we still relied. If you look at the last results of the last say, five years, we're still relying on how the system used to be. And, and I think um, only until recent times have we really embraced to try to teach players um, to be better technically, to be better, you know, technically under pressure, to make better decisions, and, and to play proper football. And um, you know, I just don't think that's happened in the past. And I think that's this is where now we're at that we're at that changeover. And I think it's going to be growing pains, but um, uh, I definitely see us. I definitely I have high hopes. <laughs> definitely. All right. Well, we're glad to hear that. Jeff Paulus, the uh, Academy Director, FC Edmonton, we do thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you guys very much. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. You're listening to the Two Solitude Sucker Podcast with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramay. You can reach the guys on Twitter at 24th Minute and at Kev Laramay. Email twosolitudespodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the show on Stitcher, iTunes, Feedburner, Bay Player. Yeah, listen to the show. Now listen to us flow. Yeah, now the hospitality. That's how we do. Now back to the show. And welcome back. Thanks again to Jeff for joining us. Uh, interesting conversation. I, I, I followed Jeff on Twitter for a while, so I, I knew kind of what he, he might bring to the conversation, but I thought it was worthwhile, especially in light of the women. I mean, we didn't have a women's conversation. It's not a women's program, but the same issues that you'll see on the men's side are on the women's side as well. And in fact, they're, they're amplified in many ways because they don't have the pro academies to try and you know push those gaps up and try and fill those gaps in, I should say. Uh, so, so I thought it was a worthwhile and timely conversation to have. What would your takeaway, Kevin, from, uh, from Jeff's, uh, Jeff's interview? What I really found interesting is the fact that I, I forgot that Vancouver had a uh, exclusive rights for the players from Edmonton, Alberta, uh, Manitoba, and uh, BC. I was really shocked about it because we're moving to a different type of Canadian soccer where there's an ASL team. Who knows, maybe eventually more NASL and more USL teams or, or something in that vein. 
And I don't think that uh, a team should have rights in three different provinces when uh, teams from that own area are starting to have academies now. There's one in Calgary being built. There's So they, they need not... Edmonton should maybe have that rights, exclusive, exclusive rights, or maybe uh, trying to get something worked out so that it doesn't affect them. Because at the end of the day, an academy is an academy. And if the be-all, end-all is MLS or NSL, it's still development of a player. And I think that's the most important thing. And I think the, Jeff's views on development for the national team especially, because he did mention the national team a lot, and we only had an Edmonton conversation, but he keep bringing up Canada. And it really seems important for the FC Edmonton Academy to do player for the national team. And I think it should be a part of every academy. And it's refreshing to hear that coming from the, the men in charge. Yeah. Well, one of my issues with all three of the MLS teams when it comes to that is that the, their primary focus is entirely, which is understandable to a point, that their entire focus is on how it, how it benefits them. Like how does development benefit the MLS side, uh, which is fine and dandy, but it doesn't necessarily translate to developing the country as a whole. So that's why... I tend to lean on the side of Canadian development whenever it comes into this as opposed to MLS partisanship. To get back to the exclusive rights issue, I mean there's a couple couple points there. Uh, first off, he said we don't sell players when we do transfers here. Well, that's how most academies fund themselves in the world, right? But if the Vancouver Whitecaps decide that they like what Edmonton's done in a player, they can just go in and lay a claim on him and Edmonton gets no compensation at all for that. And is that fair? I don't know. It doesn't seem fair to me. When it comes to the um, you know the MLS exclusive rights issues, uh, to me Canada should be like I, I don't believe in in exclusive regions at all. Like if I had my my way, there would be no protected regions at all in the country, and that anyone can come in and try and develop a player because I think competition um, breeds more success. Right? That's my philosophy, and I'm talking about Vancouver could set up an academy next to BMO Field for all I care. I would be happy with that because it would be driving TFC to be better. TFC and, could do the exchange, the same and set up an academy beside BC Place, and it would be driving them better. And, and Montreal, same thing, right? Oh, I agree with you 100% because it's funny we talk about this. This week, it's been announced that PSG, the French club Paris Saint-Germain, is opening an academy in Quebec. And there's a lot of those new... I don't want to say fake academies, but those for-profit academies that their be-all and all is not necessarily to create players for Canada, for the city, the region, or the national team, but the be-all and all is to sell some more PSG shirts to uh, get uh, people to pay a couple hundred bucks and have a three-day tryout. Uh, that's the be-all and all is to make money for those academies. And I think it's a shame because we should have academies like the 3MLS Club, Edmonton, uh, Ottawa, those type of academies, Sigma, like he mentioned as well, should be taken should be more of them. They should be taken over the development side and not let academies like the, I'll say, the fake Mickey Mouse academies like the FC Barcelona, the Wolves, or uh, PSG come into the country here just for a little presence and just to basically uh, brand themselves and to uh, have a better visibility for their own mark and for their own brand. So I think it's sad that some of those academies come here when we actually do have a lot of good academies that don't receive enough uh, publication enough marketing enough nobody talks about them anymore and i think it's important that people know that if you're a young soccer player you want to become a great you need development you need to head towards one of those academies that are uh, for the benefit of our nation the clubs here and i think that's the future for the game yeah i mean i used to when i lived in the west side of the city here in toronto though i was near little portugal and there's there's a field there which is branded uh sporting or sporting lisbon right like it's branded as sporting 
and it's a little program they run there or whatever. But it's, it's, it's exactly – it's about branding. It's about just trying to get out there and having people say, oh, yeah, I tried out for sporting. What they mean is they paid $200 to have a camp for three days. Exactly. And th- these programs aren't – they're designed in any way whatsoever. I'm sure, look. If PSG opens an academy up and they see like you know Messi cover walking around, they'll, yeah, they're going to go. They're going to go buy that kid and bring and take him to Paris, <laughs> but they're not going as soon as they can, right? But yeah. they're not really there to try and you know work day in day out to to build and develop a player. They're there to sell a few strips and to to create affiliations with that club. So that that's part of their their global branding scheme, global branding project, right? So exactly, like I would be much better rather have Sporting Kansas City have an academy in, in, in Toronto than, than Sporting Lisbon because it would be more likely that they might actually try and develop a player. And um, then it would force TFC or the academy in that city to put some more resources and more scouting and more development to try to identify actual players they want to bring in before the other team does. And I think that competition side could probably raise the level of academies into the whole nation. Exactly. Real quickly, I'll just uh, the exclusive rights right now as they exist. There's regions. Uh, Toronto have Toronto FC has 50 mile radius around their training center is the only area they have exclusivity for. But that's a pretty big population base. It's about six million. Country? It's about six million people though. But if you'll allow me, a lot of people will argue. Well, that's why Toronto is such a small one. If you want to talk partisanship for a second, well, the area that Vancouver controls is 11 million. Eleven and a half million in the area Montreal clears, uh, sorry, controls is Quebec, which is about eight million. So of the three Canadian teams, uh, Toronto has the least. So I don't quite understand how they came to those numbers or why the Whitecaps have managed to negotiate all that area for themselves. And it's you know great for the Whitecaps, I guess. But this is speaks to my overall issue with the Whitecaps. Some days is they tend to only think about themselves when it comes to these issues. And I think that if they think that the academy is so good out there. They shouldn't be afraid of competition, and they might want to open that up. That would be my message to them. All right. Um, before I get myself in more Whitecaps troubles whatsoever, let's, let's move on and talk about the Canadian women, which I'm going to get myself in more trouble again. Yeah, exactly. I, I, think, I think at this point, uh, what, what I feared happened has happened in a lot of ways. I, I was trying to – people say, oh, you're trying to play down their, their expectations. No, I was trying to, to speak to what their realistic expectations were in the lead-up to this tournament so people understood what success and failure really was. Uh, they did exactly what they were capable of doing in this tournament, Kevin, and we said this many, many times before. For the idea that they could upset three teams ranked above them in back-to-back-to-back games was absurd. It was just not something that realistically would ever happen other than that 1% that I kept throwing out there, and I told you the math last week and how I actually was overestimating their odds when I did that 1%. It was actually 0.6%. So, you know... They're out, and they went out in a game where they fell behind quickly. A lot of their problems were amplified in the in that opening in minute. That three minutes, yeah. Uh, Laura Sasselman, uh, I mean, God help her. She she had some good run of form when she was in her late twenties. Uh, you know, she was a big part of the London team, but she clearly was past it at this, in this tournament. She clearly was overwhelmed. She was playing out of position. She was playing out of form, <laughs> out of fitness. So the fact that she's playing at all speaks volumes to what the problem is in this country. She's not okay. I, I only say this not to be like cutting about it. I point out that she's American and was developed in the States because 
it speaks to the fact that we're not developing anyone. This is the best option we had was to basically search for a dual citizen that had been developed in a different system to play a role badly for the Canadian national team. That was the best option apparently that we had. That speaks to the problem in the program. That speaks to the problem moving forward in this program. How do you get better from here? I don't know how you can get better from here. They're going backwards. Uh, do you think it has something to do with what we talked about earlier? Academy system, a professional system, or at least maybe a semblance of academy professional system for the women's to streamline their development, to standardize. Maybe the national program should do what they did with the men, standardized training, standardized development. I think it's time we go there because now we're not going to lie. It's the Wild West in the women's soccer development world where uh, some people get developed in NCAA. Some people start with the W League and make their way up. Some people just play with their club the entire season, the entire career and become better at the end. I think it's time we streamline that and actually put goals on paper to uh, development goals. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We I've beaten this drum and Jason DeVos has an article in TSN today which says the same thing kind of uh, that – the women's system is broken in every way. There's there's no development here. We rely on youth clubs to get kids scholarships and then we let the NCAA do what it does, which produces players that often are lacking technically. There are uh, some good programs, but Just often. a quick, a quick uh, note. The NCAA's goal is not to produce players. It's to win games in their leagues, which is the exact opposite of development. So there's a big gap there. Yeah, winning is part of development at the highest level, but it's it's only part of it. It's not all of it, right? And look, uh, uh, I, you got to be careful when you're talking with the NCAA, and I understand, especially on the women's side of things, how that is the big carrot. That really is the only value, that financial value that they can gain from the game in a lot of ways because there are so few pro opportunities. And that speaks to the exact reason why both Canada and the United States, if you look at the Americans play in this tournament so far, you'll know and you're objective about it that they are falling behind too. They just have a greater base to fall behind from. So they haven't, you know, they're in the semifinals because. The women's game hasn't completely uh, changed yet. Um, it's because there's no pro system. There's a very limited pro system, and it's a top-down pro system that exists right now rather than a bottom-up system. And what I mean by that is you don't have – you know, it's not the – I'm going to get tinfoil here in a minute. You don't have clubs that are trying to aspire up a pyramid. You have clubs that are uh, artificially placed at the top of a pyramid and expected to financially exist and financially succeed off the bat from scratch. And that's very difficult in the women's game. Because like it or lump it, the numbers of interest aren't there to sustain things financially for them so they can do these type of programs. I don't know what the answer is, especially from a Canadian perspective, without a massive investment at some level and a massive risk at some level by someone. But this is the problem. If we rely on club programs trying to independently produce players to get scholarships and then hope for the best after that, we're not even going to be in World Cups in, in four or eight years, so we don't have to worry about winning them. <laughs> sure, that's the way to see it. Yeah, I mean, I look, I don't want that, um, but you know, it's just a shame because the, the women's program right now is at this high level, this this peak level that casual observers come in. They look at the way these games play out. They look at the fact that England sits back after their two-goal lead and Canada looks like they've got all the pressure forward in the dying stages of that game when England's trying to control a game and close it out. They're not looking at this with any nuance they're going ah those good old canadian gals with their grit no it like it's there's those good old canadian gals that have to use grit because they don't have the skill to compete and that's the problem and that's you know it's people aren't used to um hearing uh people 
critically talk about female athletes, which is a whole other issue. So that comes into play too. But the bottom line, the reality is that team skill level was nowhere near good enough to be anywhere near a conversation about winning the World Cup. And that should have been our goal. I do believe that the window of opportunity passed a long time ago with this team. That Really, it was probably 2007 or 2000, if not you know, maybe 2011, if I'm generous, but somewhere in that seven to 11 bubble was their clear best opportunity to truly compete. That's when the, you know, the game was a little bit lower. The women's game does increase in its skill every year. Incredibly. So like the difference between this world cup and the last one is remarkable and it'll be even more the same in four years. And that's why I truly legitimately don't, would not bet in Canada qualifying for that tournament. You know, people might laugh at that. They say, well, how is Costa Rica and Mexico, which are the two teams that really would have to bypass us, going to get that much better? Well, if Mexico we'll gets their thing, to get their act together, it's not going to take long for them to become a, a formidable team. Yeah, and they announced plans to create a league uh, last week. Well, there you go. So um, it's going to be tough, and it's going to be Mexico, U.S. at the top, and maybe we're battling with Costa Rica for that final spot. And that's, you know, I, I think maybe we might find a way in in four years' time, but. Eight years? No way in hell I'm touch, touching that conversation with the past. We might, might have fallen behind some Caribbean countries at that point if we don't change our ways. So, look, this isn't, I'm, it's harsh to say these things out loud. It really is. But this is the reality. The women's program is in a bigger mess than the men's. No one believes that because they look at the men and they go, ha ha, eight one hundred us, you're joking. No. Look in at the context. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in context of the women's game. First off, the context of the women's game, there's there's maybe 20 countries in the world that are given a given it a go right now. Canada is in the middle of that. So that is a bit higher in context towards to where they are in the men. But there's no pro programs for the women. There's no opportunities for the women. There's really no plans as far as I can tell other than, you know, the League One here in Ontario is, is trying to raise up and maybe that'll help. But that's one drop in the bucket. I mean, there's, I just don't see hope. Like I'm not trying to be and say this. I just don't see hope for the women's program. I think they're in a bigger mess than the men. All right, let's talk about the big New Zealand elephant in the room. Was John Herdman responsible for that game? If you hear him after the game, he almost apologized for the exit of Canada. So how do you feel about John Herdman, Dwayne? And uh, did was it a used car salesman strategy that he used? Well, my feeling, I have ambivalent feelings about John Herdman. I appreciate some of his qualities. Um, I think that he is a good uh He's good at the psycho- psychology of it, the, the psychological aspects of the game. Um, he understands the, the differences between men, female and male athletes and how to manage female athletes. It takes different types of skills and that's, that's just a reality. Uh, it's, it's not me trying to be like you know controversial. There is a difference in how you handle and yeah. he does very well at that. Um, but I think that we put the halo on John uh, John Herdman way too quickly and we put him on a pedestal and we've done this with every woman's coach and it has to do with how that program isolates itself from the rest of the Canadian program. It sits in – like it is separate out there in Vancouver. It's in a camp half the time. They don't really deal with outsiders very much. They don't really deal with criticism from outside their program at all and that's – that's something that they struggle with. They don't like outsider opinion coming in to influence them. And this creates this cult of personality around their manager, and it has for years. It did through Pellerud, it did through Marache, and it's done through Herdman. And I think that that's a problem too. We need to not put 
the women's manager on a pedestal. We need to treat the women's manager the same way we treat the men's manager, which is to evaluate them and how they're doing and how they're developing the program. I think Herdman's done enough uh, to not have his job at risk right now. I mean, quarterfinals was a bare minimum, I think, and he accomplished that. Uh, Olympic qualifying is going to be something that he needs to be watched closely on. I think the expectation should be to get to Rio, obviously, and to do something there to at least, um, I don't know, replicating a bronze medal is going to be tough, but the Olympic program is a little wider open, so there is greater chance of it, I would say. So I, I think you just need to focus on Rio now and focus on what he's doing and focus on how he starts to bring in some new talent in that program and see what he's doing to try and develop that. I mean, Bev Priestman's a woman who runs their uh, their development side of things on the women's side of the games, and uh, you know they talk highly about the work she's doing. So we need to start reaping the benefits of that. We need to start seeing a new generation. In terms of his handling of this tournament, Kevin, I don't know why Adrian Leon didn't play more. I mm-hmm. think it was clear that, uh, that Tancredi is much of a great warrior. She's been for the country, was past it. Um, I don't know what they could have done at the back because there really isn't a lot of depth there. But Sassman yeah, clearly... Buchanan cannot play at four position at once. Yeah, and... Exactly. I mean, it puts it over Stranger. She's a 19-year-old girl, too. She was the best player in that team, probably. Yeah, maybe. Um, she might have been. Uh, Ashley Lawrence, I think, had a good tournament as well. Uh, but uh, McLeod would be who I would call their player of the tournament. Whenever your keeper is your best player, you probably, aren't, you probably aren't having a good tournament. Um, uh, well, one question I have as well, Dwayne, just to mention, uh, you mentioned about uh, Herdman, the pedestal he's put on. Comparing to Benito Floro when he came in with the best pedigree of her manager Canada had ever had, and he was analyzed, he was criticized. His first things that he did, he was criticized. And eventually people uh, uh, realized what he was doing and agreed with it. But there's a big uh, double standard there where uh, the men's coach, as soon as he's nominated, he gets scrutinized, analyzed, and... Uh, criticize about everything he does and I don't think it's the same for the women and I think it should be the same because one quote that you said to me many many months ago and it stuck in my head is we cover soccer and sometimes women play soccer but we cover the sport not the gender of the athlete that play it and, and I think it should be the same for more than just the, the coverage of the sport it should be the same for uh, the management of the sport the way it's covered the way it's talked about I think there's a big disparity there Yeah, it's a bit better now than it has been in the past. But, uh, you know, the lead-in, had anyone been paying attention to more than the human interest aspect of the Women's World Cup leading into this, there would not have been anyone surprised by the way Canada played. But we don't. We don't cover female athletes between major events. We only cover them at major events, and we mostly cover them as human interest stories. That, to me, is sexist. It is. You're right. I I agree. um, If we want to treat female athletes seriously, I think we should treat them as athletes. And part of that is being critical of them when they – when they deserve criticism and that that's always been my philosophy this program you, you know i'm i'm actually not as critical as people think i i just am a realist about it and i think that uh, they did as much as they could with the talent they had it's just that where i'm critical is that nothing's being done to fix that talent gap and that speaks to system-wide issues and then at least on the men's side as i said many times and i'll say one last time at least there is the beginnings, a skeleton of something being built there, whereas on the women's side, it really is where the men's men's game was a few years ago. And like I said, I give this another cycle, and I think even in context that the men's program will have surpassed the women's program in terms of where it is contextually within the world. And that's something that people just don't wrap their heads around because they're not understanding the differences between the two sides of the game, and they're not understanding how 
the women's game is evolving so much faster than the men's side can because there's just not as much evolution possible at this point. And eventually, Canada is going to start to find its find its place based on how it operates. And how it operates, as we see on the men's side, is to find themselves in the 100s. They're not going to be in the 100s of the women's game because there's too much rampant sexism and systemic sexism in the world that there will ever be 100 programs that, that truly try. But they could find themselves in the 20s. Yeah, I being could in the 20 out of 30, it's almost being the same as in the 100s out of the 1000s. Yeah, that's, that's my point. No, um, I, I agree with you, Dwayne. And the one thing, too, that I think it's important to, to keep focus is, well, the women's had success in the last decade despite the way development is made for women's soccer and not the other way around. And now that the rest of the world is catching up, the outliers, the Sinclair, the Tancredi, the outliers of a program that actually had success because of their own personal will and uh, motivation and ambition, well, that is only few per generation. And if you don't have that, Canada would not have success. So despite the structure they had, Canada had success at women's level. And I think for now on, they need that structure to get that success. It's not going to be as easy as it was. I'm not saying it was easy, but it's not going to be as easy as it was in the last decade. Yeah, the athleticism, um, the athleticism to technical skill balance is, is tipping towards technical skill now. When Canada was at its strongest and had its greatest potential is when it was tipped towards athleticism. And, and if you look at Sinclair as a player, as great as she's been, she's primarily an athletic player that gets forward, that's big, that's strong, that's able to overpower other other female athletes and, and had a nose for goal. She was very, very good on the ball as well. She had technical skills. That's not suggest otherwise, but she was a physical specimen too. Um, that advantage is going to be reduced, as we're seeing with Abby Wambach on the American side. It's the the women's game have figured out how to handle those big athletic women, and are you know the teams that are going to be in the final. I think Japan. I think is going to get through England. Japan, and Germany. Ger- Japan, Germany would be who it clearly looks like right now, and and Germany has a mix of players, but Japan certainly is a very undersized, sort of a technically skilled team, and they are the defending world champions, and and they could very well. I would give them a chance against Germany. Um, I, I think that that's a toss-up there. I don't think the U.S. has enough uh, left in its tank to get past a German team that is just very efficient. And England, you know, benefited from a draw. So let's that's, that's be honest and, and say that it looks like Germany-Japan, and that'll be a nice final. And we should all watch that and enjoy the game and celebrate it for what it is. And, uh, you know, celebrate the fact that the Canadian women did what they were capable of and try and fix what's wrong so that they're capable of more moving forward. Absolutely. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, the Canadian Review. The Canadian Review on the Two Solitudes Soccer Podcast. And welcome back to the Canadian Review. Um, Whitecaps fans, come on, admit it. <laughs> it was a dive. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Down to 10, man. It was a really harsh call on Andrew Farrell to get that red card on, on Vancouver's winning goal 2-1. Uh, sort of one of the, the Whitecaps had a, a, quite a fortunate game, I think, in a lot of ways. And I'm not discounting the fact he got the three points. But uh, first goal was a dead giveaway, straight headed right to the player coming in. And the second one, I don't know if it was a dive so much as just a terrible refereeing call. The, Farrell didn't touch him and he fell. And that's MLS refereeing sometimes, and you get some and you don't get some, so I guess you move on. But uh, two, another three points on the road. Vancouver surviving this road trip quite well. They remain near the top in points per game, uh, with Seattle dropping down the like a rock right now. 4-1 loss to 
the Timbers uh, rivalry week Sunday. Uh, it's it's got to be fortunate. You got to be flying high if you're a Whitecaps fan now, Kevin. Well, yeah, I guess you have to, and uh, I guess you have to be flying high too if you're a Toronto fan with that game on Wednesday against the rival, the Impact at BMO Field. Day. I would say probably the a DP signed victory when Bradley Altador. And Javinko take over a game. That's what it looks like. Yeah, well, there's three players in the pitch. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was the most complete game Toronto's played in a long time. Uh, they, they Even if the Montreal goal. took the goal first, the, they had no answer for what came after. Well, it was the the goal first was completely against the run play. It was a counter goal. It was a nice counter goal. And that's one thing I will say about the impact is I thought that they did play the counter game well against TFC. It was about the only, as you said, it was the only answer they had, but they did get a couple opportunities off the break, uh, which, you know, suggests that that's how they thought they had to play Toronto. They didn't play it as chippy as New York did the week before. Uh, and But Toronto, see, it's high-end talent. That, that Altador goal, when you have a player on your roster that can score a goal like Altador's the winning goal it is that ended up the second goal, you're going to win a lot of games in MLS, and you're going to win games in MLS you don't deserve to win sometimes, although this was a game that Toronto did deserve to win. Um, it, Yeah, full, complete game. Now, contrast that to the, the game of the weekend, which was the nil-nil with DC United, top team in the East points-wise right now and points for game-wise as well. That was a strange one, Kevin. It was the weather in that stadium was as bad as I've ever seen it, and I think it really affected both teams' plays. Uh, it's not that they sat back, but they just weren't able to create in the same way that they normally do. And I, again, I'm saying both sides here. Uh, Toronto had most of the ball, but they couldn't really break down a, a strong, staunch DC defense. I think DC clearly was looking to get out of that with a point. Uh, the impetus of that, of course, was on TFC to get the three. <laughs> they had a few chances there, you know. Javinko had a couple free kicks that were near the edge of the box, and he just couldn't get over the ball. It just flew into the into the stratosphere because the the weather was just insane. The wind was whipping in there. The rain was pouring. It was never. I don't think I've ever been as cold in that stadium, and I've watched games in that stadium in November, Kevin. So it it was nasty out, and um, you know a nil nil was as I said. I said said to someone beside me that it's going to be nil nil like in the sixth minute. Like it just had that feel right away that it just there was no way that they that the skill players were going to break down the defensive players on that day. The the weather, unless there was a mistake, was going to basically ensure that that was nil nil right from the get go. Yeah, it's funny saying that because on Wednesday with the Montreal and Toronto game in Toronto, I was there in the press box and uh, people next to me in the press box were after that first Montreal goal when everything really opened up. We all look at each other like, yeah, that game's not saying one nothing. That's going to be two, three, four more goals. That game was so open and what a contrast to the game in the weekend for Toronto and I think it the weather in a way I don't think the players look at each other and be like okay we'll, let's have a gentleman's agreement to not risk everything but I think subconsciously when the weather and the elements are that bad you just don't want to risk it all to maybe injure yourself especially with the gold cup and uh, the rest of the season in front of you yeah I mean the gold cup is the we'll get to the Montreal game in a moment but the 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 Gold Cup was on everyone's mind, and that is the talking point here in Toronto right now in terms of how much it will affect TFC's season to lose Altidore and Bradley for probably four games, uh, to lose the Canadians. So you're talking about Zario and Morgan for probably two to three games. It depends on how deep Canada goes in the tournament. And we're, we're winning not the thing. Yeah. If they win the thing, then, hey, it'll be four games. The U.S.-Canada final would be a TFC nightmare <laughs> in oh, terms of player loss. Can you imagine the Canadian player like Osario injures Bradley in that game? Well, four players missing for the for the stand. I will say this, and I, I have less concerns about the Gold Cup effect on TFC season than most. 
simply because I look at it as a worst case scenario and I see the worst case scenario is a four game losing streak and I don't, you know, that's not ideal, clearly, but it's not overcomable too. I mean, New York, New England lost seven in a row in the middle of last season and ended up making the MLS Cup final. Um, I'm not that concerned. I don't think they're going to lose four in a row either. So, because they will have Javinko around. So, and I think that he's capable of winning games on his own. Um, I know what the expectation is. To, uh, losing Bradley, losing Altidore. I mean, you're going to have to step up. Jay Chapman's going to have to to play some minutes. I suspect uh, they're going to have to find someone to take over Morgan. It's, it's, it's a nice surprise. It's happy surprise that we're worried about losing Morgan now because at the start of the year that wouldn't have been something that ever factored into our our worries. Uh, Osario, I think, you know, Warner will probably play his role uh, to, to maybe not as good of an effect. I thought Osario has really picked up his game in the last month. He's, he's really linking up with the other guys. Well, that's kind of his job is to provide service to the to the, the high-end skill guys, and he's doing a good job of that. But I think Warner is a capable replacement. Morgan, you know, we're going to need to see Bloom or someone that we haven't seen all year step back into a role and, 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 and earn it back, I guess. And, and that's the hope there. You're not going to replace Altidore up front. Uh, they simply can't. Uh, he is a unique talent in MLS, and uh, TFC has no one like it. They can only hope that maybe they get get something from it. I wonder if you know maybe Bright DK will get recalled from from maybe. his loan. Yeah. Uh, you know they're on break anyway, so so maybe you might bring him back into the lineup. Uh, there's some talk of maybe bringing in another player, but you know you can't rely on that. It, again, though, and this is the bottom line. I'll leave it at this. It's only four games. It's really only four games. If they can, if they can get six points out of those four games, if they can get even five points out of those four games. How do you get five points out of four games? Um, that'd be tough. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's not possible. Well, well, it is, but it's like it is, the, it's, it's, one it's, win yeah. and two draws and a yeah, loss. Yeah, it's, it's it's one win, two draws and a loss. So that that would be the anyway. Yeah, they need to get some points, but uh, I don't think it's the be all or the be all end all or the end of the world. Um, if they do struggle a little bit this month, the more important thing is to get those guys back and healthy uh, for the August run in because that's when that's when things really get real. Is once they get back from the Gold Cup, and that's kind of how I'm looking at this. My biggest worry about the Gold Cup is you know Michael Bradley and Josie Altador run into each other and break each other's legs or something like that's you know my concern there. Um, yeah, which is probably the worst case scenario for Toronto would be that. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, Definitely. against Canada. Canada, they all four of them some collide into each other somehow, some weird freak accident. Um, Montreal two two against uh, Philadelphia. Uh, elements again. were uh, like you were talking about the elements against DC. Same thing was happening at Chester, Pennsylvania, PPL Park in Philly, on the outskirts of Philly, where the Impact played a two two draw against Philly. Two yellows for Patrice Bernier get a red card. Two yellows for let me just try to pronounce his name correctly which is not going to be easy. Uh, Eric Ayuk Ambu. So for him, Bernier was at the 67th minute and 77th minute for Eric Ayuk Ambu. Uh, Montreal could have got that win. Montreal got chances to get the win on the road. They got close. They tied it up at the end, uh, but they had their chances. It was very close. If you're looking at chances, Montreal had about 38 chances at that game. So do you blame the weather? Do you blame everything? It was not easy. Montreal had 52% of the possession, 83% pass accuracy. Things that I've been talking about for months now are actually getting better. 2-2 performance on the road with the element. I'll take it. Striker scored. Piatti scored. So Jack Mack, a striker, and Piatti scored. That's good when it's not just defender score, when it's actually offense getting chances and burying those chances. I think it bodes well. And that performance is a, a big, big turnaround from the 
weekday game against Toronto. I think uh, the 2-2 draw on Philly maybe had a, a victory feeling after the game they played in Toronto earlier in that week. Yeah, they had to turn it around. I'm sure they would have been disappointed to allow three goals against TFC, uh, particularly after getting a lead there. Um, you know, they, they kind of were bossed around a little bit, and I'm not saying that to be partisan. It, it was kind of a one-sided game in terms of possession and so forth in Toronto. So to to come back and control the possession, uh, to, to prove – Yeah, on the road. To prove that um, – and again, and I say this carefully, I, I think Montreal is realistically battling for fifth, sixth, somewhere like that. And so to go down and make a statement against Philadelphia is another team that's going to be in that mix that we're better than you. And we're going to claim that five, six spot and get into that postseason coin flip. Right. And that's all. That's what Montreal's goal will be right now. I, I think they, Montreal is better than the standings say. I think Montreal is better than people think. But I don't think Montreal is as good as uh, some person from uh, that covers the team season top two, top three. Maybe not, but I do agree with you. Uh, four, five, six, they'll battle for those positions. Maybe seventh, but they'll be close to the battle for the playoff. If they just continue their points per game average right now, what are the top five in the league still because of the amount of games they played? Yeah, I mean, Montreal, when it gets congested games late, is, is that's going to be a challenge for them. I mean, the yeah. games in hands are a blessing and a curse all in the same time. Um, you got to win the games to have them count. And there's a lot of them coming back to back to back to back. And when you're playing three at eight, it affects any team, any good team. And it doesn't matter how good you are. You're going to be affected when you're playing that third game in eight games. So that, that'll be something that Montreal will have to, to factor in and try and maybe get some of their depth players up and working uh, down in the, down for the stretch run. But um you know, it's been a good turnaround after what was a slow start, and uh, I do think they're in a playoff mix. And you know, we might we might get that dream of the four hundred one Derby uh, playoff series, which would be something to see. It, it would, and I have to say, maybe Frank Lopez. I don't want to say save this job with this uh, draw, but it's been a couple weeks now. Then when there's a bad result, the one talking point that's coming out of the journalists or the people that covers the team is. Will he be back? Will he make it to the next trip? Uh, there's something going on. And if you listen to the latest of the Woodworks, I did an interview with uh, Frank Lopez after the game. And uh, he was missing something. There was something missing that wasn't there. Something happened. There was a, a, the energy, the focus, the determination that usually Klopas had was a little bit lacking. And I think it's telling. I think there's something going on. And who knows if there's two, three bad results in a row, something could happen. But I think with that two to draw on the road, uh, maybe he bought himself more time. Yeah, I think that uh, both Toronto and Montreal are too quick to blame managers traditionally anyway. Probably true, yes. Yeah, it, it's a, I don't know if it's a Canadian thing. I don't know I think if it's, it's a hockey thing. Hockey thing, or I don't know what it is. I, I, I know here in, in Toronto, the conversation is always about Greg Vandy, and it makes me look crazy because I think that the actual influence of what a manager brings to, to a football game is less than what we sometimes think it is it, it's i just don't necessarily buy into the it's all the manager's fault and you get rid of a manager and put a new one in there it's going to fix everything which tends to be the philosophy here in toronto and it's worked really well for the past eight years guys really really well and it's the same thing with uh with uh, Saputo and, and the managers in Montreal, the you know Klopas has actually lasted much longer than we joked he would when he was hired. But uh, if they let him go now, it's kind of more of the same from the Montreal perspective. Uh, Drew, both. When you look at things uh, objectively, though, if you I'll take the game against Toronto on the weekday as an example because we're both there and we can relate to this. 
Between you and me, Dom Arduro should not have come in at the 67th minute. He should have been there for the whole second half. He had that speed that could catch Toronto in that big gap that was right behind Warner and the defender. There was a big gap, but because Toronto was controlling the ball and moving up forward, Montreal never had the opportunity to really exploit that gap. But with a player like Arduro, with the speed he has, they could have had a better shot of exploiting that gap if he would have come in earlier than later. And I think if you want to influence a game that's not going your way as a manager, sometimes you have to be quicker on the trigger to make that change and not always do the same typical predictable subs and I think sometimes you need to think differently and I think Ajero should have been there a lot earlier that's just an example of uh, some things that maybe he had a chance to influence the game positively but didn't take it yeah I was surprised Ajero didn't play a lot in that game because uh, obviously he had burnt TFC in the in the Voyager's Cup with the late goal, uh, you know, the former TFC curse is, is well known <laughs> that the guys get up to play those games. And the speed, certainly, when they were play, set up to play a counter game, the only thing I can think of is maybe he didn't trust them defensively as much. And they did need to stay stay in a solid defensive shell in order to uh, to play the counter game effectively. That's the other side of it. But certainly his speed would have would have played a role there. But anyway, we'll see. Uh, I do, if you look at the average amount of managers that the three Canadian teams have had and compare it to the rest of the league, it is a bit it's absurd. almost one per year. If you even, yeah. even Vancouver, because we barely talked about them. But before Robinson, it was Robinson, Rene, and the other one. They had basically the same amount of Montreal and Toronto in the same amount of years. Yeah, they had Teeter there first when they brought him yeah. in as well. He only lasted half a year because basically the uh, that's going way back. That's like it's called football middays. <laughs> We're talking about this. The, the 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 fans really wanted Teeter and they couldn't find anyone else. So they brought him in without any confidence in him and then fired him as soon as they could. So uh, that wasn't their highest moment. But uh, yeah, too many manager firings in Canada. That's that's our bottom line here today. Um, that said, we talked about John Herbman's future earlier on the show, so um, you know maybe we're part of the problem. Maybe we are. All right. Until next time, this week you can listen to the Five Rings Podcast, USL Radio, Off the Woodworks, and a brand new show on the Off the Woodworks Studios family, 216 Stitches, a baseball podcast. Look for it on iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere. And until next time on the Two Solid Two Soccer Podcast, well, have a great soccer. <laughs>